Welcome to The Lisa Show. It's one foot in front of the other for miles and miles and miles. Those miles turn into days and days into weeks, weeks into months. It's uh, quite literally the highest highs and lowest lows when you go on a hike. And this is something that that my family has really been uh, getting into. Okay, so and I know that I'm not alone in this. Uh, During COVID, it's been reported across the country that hiking trails, national parks have seen an increase because we are cooped up inside. We want to get out and want to see the beauty of nature uh, in a safe and socially distant uh, way. And hiking is a great way to do that. Now, I've gone on some hikes. I'm even like training to go on a big hike and and, and hike uh, a Mount Timpanogos, which is near where I live. And, you know, you, you got to be in good shape. You got to prepare uh, mentally. So I'm not there yet. And so I'm working towards that by going on shorter, shorter hikes. Now, when I say long hikes, I mean like hours long, not days and not weeks, certainly not months. Um, so our next guest, Barney Scout Man, he's not only an avid hiker, but he's one who knows what that means to train and to push through, not just for hours, not just for days, but for weeks and months. And he also didn't hike one, not two, but he hiked three of America's longest hiking trails. He wrote a book about it, and we wanted to talk to him not only about what it's like to do that, but why you'd want to go hiking for five months. Welcome, Barney. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Lisa. Great introduction, by the way. And I'm glad you're getting out there. Hey, you know, I'm not alone in this. There's something about being in the outdoors. I'm excited to talk to you, though, about what that means on an extended level. Uh, But first, I want to give you your... Um, the the right kind of accolades here for you. You have the triple crown in the hiking world, which is a big deal. Can you explain a little bit about really what that means? In in America today, there are three great north south trails. There's the Appalachian, which most of us have have heard of, have heard of, two thousand one hundred eighty miles. There's Pacific Crest Trail, which also most of us have heard of, 2,650 miles. And in your backyard or close to your backyard along the Rocky Mountains from Mexico to Canada, there is the Continental Divide Trail, 3,100 miles. And wow. a triple crowner is one who has hiked all, all three and usually each one in a single go. And I'll tell you, and this is true because I looked this up, there are fewer hiking triple crowners than those who have flown in outer space, Lisa. I did not know that. Wow. Well, now I'm even more impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and and you don't just decide to do this one day. So take us back into time about when you started hiking and when you knew that, hey, this is going to be my goal. I'm going to go all the way. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the thing is, just as you in, in, in the introduction talked about this goal in hiking the mountain whose name I can't pronounce, <laughs> you have to really want to do this. Because otherwise, a lot of hiking, there's certainly some pain involved in hiking, especially long distance. But I got my start um, at age 13. And in fact, if you were to look at little little Barney man and predict, is this guy could be a hiker? The answer is no. Because I was always the shortest in my class. I was born into a household of wonderful parents who were not outdoors folks at all in their entire life. They're now 90 and 96. Wow. They have slept outdoors five times. <laughs> I love that you know that. That's such a specific number. <laughs> <laughs> and But what they did is they took me to Boy Scout meetings. And in there, I met some wonderful adult leaders who took me on my first 50-mile backpack at age 13, hardest thing I'd ever done. I had a pack that weighed half my weight. It rained every day, and I fell in love with it. Out there, mm-hmm. as long as I kept up, uh, it did. I was the same as the big boys, as the big kids. And I could see stuff out there that were more fantastic in a museum wall, and animals weren't behind bars. You know, I'd, I'd watch TV. I was... I'm, I'm in my 60s, so I watched Davy Crockett and you know Daniel Boone, and we grew up and we wore coonskin caps. But out there was real, you know. I could see a bear in the wild, and it's me and the bear. I loved it. I fell in love with it. 
And so take us through time a little bit. You're a 13 year old boy. You love it. It's just something that you always yeah. did. Or when did it become, I, I don't want to say competitive, but certainly, you know, you have to switch that, right? Something in your brain to be able to accomplish what you have. I wouldn't use the word competitive. I'd use the word driven. Hmm. And I'm lucky. I'm lucky in backpacker because when I, um, uh, met the woman who become my wife. Uh, I was directing a summer camp and she, uh, she was a counselor. Um, and uh, if she were sitting here right now, she would tell you that if he hadn't been a backpacker, we wouldn't be married today. <laughs> and for a wedding gift, this is 1977, the largest wedding gift we asked from our families is, would you go on a 10 day backpack trip with us? <laughs> Wait, As you, you asked all of the wedding guests to go on a, a, a backpacking trip? Our immediate families, oh. uh, her, her parents and her five sibs and me and my three sibs. Obviously, my parents chose not to do that. I was going to say, I was doing did. the math. Five days, wait, what is... <laughs> right. Uh, her parents did, a couple of first sibs, and my brother did. And we've, uh, every year, we've, every summer, we go backpacking. When our son uh, was first born, before he turned one, we took him out three times. And as our kids got older... Uh, we can start seeing the day when you know they'd be in college and be uh, young adults. Um, we started seriously talking about doing a long hike, about doing the Pacific Crest Trail. I'm talking to you from San Diego, grew up in California, and I fell in love with backpacking this year in Nevada. Um, in 2003, we did the John Muir Trail, which is if you were to take the best of the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, that's it, 211 miles. And we came off at still wanting to do this big thing. Hmm. And the question you haven't asked is, how do you take five months off to do this? We were still in our working lives, right? Right. And once again, I'll use the word driven. You have to really, really want to do this. She was a high school science teacher. And basically, <laughs> uh, she told them, here's your choice at her high school. She says, your choice is, I'm either coming back or I'm not. Uh, because I'm going. <laughs> and at my own work, and let's, I'll get this off my chest. I was a lawyer in my career. In my own work, uh, I basically, I, I, I traded in um, um, money for the opportunity. I had two younger, uh, two younger partners. And in fact, my partner, 20 some odd years here is listening today from Provo. If you don't mind my uh, doing it, uh, uh, giving a shout out a to Steve Anderson. Yeah. And, uh, and a thank you if I can. Yeah. I appreciate it. I know you're all about, uh, all about uplifting. Um, Journeys North. My book, one of the reasons it's as good as it is, is because T.J. Anderson, my law partner, ex always expected the best from me wow. uh, when I was writing. So thank you, Steve. But back to your uh, uh, back to your question. So we arranged, you know, uh, did the horse trading and did the, uh, the a little bit threatening from my wife's part to take five <laughs> months off in 2007 at the Mexican border, 60 miles inland from a from a uh, from San Diego turned, faced north, touched the border fence, and stretching out in front of us was five months, 2,650 miles. Wow. Uh, we're talking with Barney Scoutman about his triple crown, what it means to be a triple crown hiker and how he's hiked three of America's longest hiking trails and how he's been able to do it. Uh, do you think that it was harder physically or mentally to accomplish what you have in, in in these three long hikes? That is a absolutely great question because I get asked all the time. Uh, 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 you use my trail name. They say, "Scout, you know, what should I do to prepare? I want to do this myself." And the answer they're expecting is do this sort of training regimen, like you're doing to climb the mountain, whose name I can't pronounce. Oh, yes, Timpano. Right, <laughs> or the, <laughs> or they're expecting you. Know, this is the gear you should have. But the answer I give them instead is if you and I were, were, were sitting here uh, physically, socially distancing, I would point to my head and say, this is the most important muscle. You have to really, really want to do this. And you have to fan the flames of that desire. Because all too often out there, um, it's uncomfortable. Oh, I <laughs> all imagine. All too often out, out there, as you'll find it, you know, there's... There's a background of pain. We're working hard. We're climbing. It's 
too cold or too hot. You know, there's usually only two times during the day when it's the right temperature. You and I are sitting <laughs> indoors in controlled temperature, but sometime in the morning it passes through a small band when it's the, when it's the comfortable temperature, and sometime in the afternoon it passes through. So you have to find ways to defend that desire. Uh, uh, whatever it is you're doing in climbing this mountain, there are things that you're really looking forward to. And uh, uh, you fan the flames of it. On my hike, uh, I would purposely plan things I'm looking forward to, such as um, my wife and I, we're going to shave our heads when we hit the midpoint, the Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> and it's going to be a surprise for her. But that's another long story. <laughs> oh, she didn't um, know that you were that you had made this agreement? Uh, not agreement, because I didn't know what she'd do or not. But I made this plan. I had someone hike in, uh, portable electric... Uh, battery powered shaving, uh, 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 head shaving equipment and surprised her. And I turned her at this point and said, Sam, I'm going to shave my head. And I suggest you do so too. And I didn't know what she was going to do. What did she do? She rears up to all five foot two of her, puts her hands on her hips. And she says, absolutely not. No way. Now here's what I know then. Because we are at that time 30 years married. I know <laughs> this is not necessarily the final answer. But I know if I say one word, it will be. So I kneel down. People get around me. The, shave my head. People are taking pictures. It's a lot of fun. And I know what's going through her mind, Lisa. I know she's thinking, you know, is two and a half months more, it'll grow back. When else am I ever going to do this? And when we finish, when, I, when they finish and I stand up, she just looks at me and says, okay, you do it. And I love her for it. Oh. <laughs> we had, it, was, it was so much fun. But it was one of the things I look forward to. So like, you know, like uh, uh, salting along the trail, different things. So many different memories, I'm sure, just jump to your mind of having experiences like this. Not only challenging, but these beautiful memories that like the one that you just um, shared. But I'm really curious of looking at, at the three of the long hikes, the Appalachian, Continental Divide and Pacific Crest Trails. How did it change you and change who uh, you really are? I, I'm a different person, very much so. Uh, from the small things to big things. Every time I um, I turn on a faucet, I'm aware that a miracle is happening in front of me. When you have hiked in country where you're going 10, 15, 20 miles between water sources, when you filled your water on the Continental Divide from a, a, a smelly cow pond that is dark green, that there are things living in it, and there's cow poop around the edges, water from a faucet or a shower, well, you control it and control the temperature. It's amazing. Anytime I go into a supermarket, I'm like a deer in the headlights. All these choices for food. And I remain amazed to this day by the simple act of putting one foot in front of the other, what you and I can do. And actually, if you allow me, mm. uh, uh, you might be sniffing, well, I'm doing this mountain. That's great. But Barney, you've done so much. But the thing is, just by stepping outside your front door today, any of you listening today, tomorrow, step outside your front door, take a walk to the park, get in your car and drive 10 minutes to the nearest trail and walk. We are different out there. We Physically, we leave stuff behind. I know our phone may still be in a pocket, but we leave so much that's clutching at us behind and we're open in an entirely different way. I've had people uh, send me an email the day after, uh, say, read a piece like this and say, I actually did it. And, you know, I lived in this neighborhood for 20 years and I talked to someone who I'd never talked to before. <laughs> yeah, we're different out there. What message do you have for our listeners who might be a little bit nervous about going on, say, a weekend packing, packing trip or, or even a longer section? Maybe not as long as you, but, but are considering that. What, do you, what advice do you have for them? Uh, I just had someone who, um, who finished my book and sent me an email, and they recalled a dear memory uh, of theirs with their father that gone in overnight, and he, the effort he'd gone to to actually bake a cake on trail. And as she's calling, she says, my son is 11 years old, and I set down your book, and I'm now going to take him out. So if you want to go, on your, especially your first overnight or weekend, go with someone who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Usually in your area, whether it's Boy Scout Sierra Club, they have they, they love to take people hiking and they have training. But here's the most important thing I want you to do is when you go in that first overnight, I want you to look in the person, the experienced person you're going with, and you look in the eye and you say this to them. You say, Scout says 
it's your job to make sure I have a good time. <laughs> I'm sure they're really going to appreciate that. <laughs> when you take people out, do you make sure that they have a good time? Uh, it's my duty. It's, 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 it's my one chance. You know, just like if you expose something to something you really love, it's your one chance to have them to have them appreciate it and fall in love with it. We just have time for one more question. Just a minute left. Where can people find their book and what will they um, expect to find in it? Journeys North. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on my website, barneyscoutman.com, and I'll send you a signed copy. You can find it in almost any bookstore, and if not, they'll order it to you. Uh, it was Mountaineer's Books, uh, uh, lead book last year. But just like uh, folks love going to a place like Hogwarts or being taken to Narnia, um, I will take you out to a place just as fantastical, but it's all real. And it's a people story. The biggest thing my wife and I found out there is that the landscape's gorgeous, drop dead, but it's the people out there that make the difference. The story of six of us, my wife and I, and two much younger couples, and it amazes me they have trusted me with their stories. Well, thank you so much for your time, Barney. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a real pleasure this morning. Barney Scoutman is one of the rare individuals who has through-hiked America's triple crown of trails, the Appalachian, Pacific Crest, and Continental Divide Trails. His new book, Journeys North, is out now. Again, on Amazon, you can find out more on his Instagram at journeys.north or Barney Scoutman. That's with two N's. Dot com. Always so interesting to talk to somebody who has, has done stuff that very, very few people have. And I love what he says about just being out in nature, whether it's a walk, whether it's a hike or for an overnighter, just having that time and taking that time to be outside and to uh, connect not only with nature, but also with other people that you might not. Um, it just is such an interesting, new, different perspective. that one of the jobs that parents have if are feeding kids. Okay, this is a very basic I am, I am so glad that you know that that's one of the things that parents do. It's hard to forget because it seems like we as parents are always preparing food. There's a lot of meals. There's a lot of snacks. You got to think about it. You got to shop for it. You got to chop it up in a lot of cases. Uh, but taking that, it. But, but taking that responsibility very seriously, I think that there isn't a parent, or I have yet to maybe meet the parent, mm -hmm. who isn't like, I want to give my child a wide variety of yes. foods, and I want them to be able to enter the world being willing to try things and right. we experience take it for granted. different foods. Mm -hmm. yep. That we know that this is the foundation, uh, the, the attitudes that they will have about food. Um, which is something that they're going to need to take with them into an adulthood. And and we all want them to have healthy attitudes about food. Now, having said that, <laughs> we can stress over the times that they're not eating well. Um, if they're picky, if they are having habits that we feel are alarming, sometimes we can overreact. Uh, and sometimes maybe we let things go and underreact, right, over mm -hmm. a long period of time. And that causes problems, too. How do you know what to do, right? How can you foster a really positive mindset in regard to our kids' eating habits? Well, here to talk with us about this is Senior Pediatric Dietitian Nutritionist for Texas Children's Hospital in Houston is Christy King. Welcome, Christy. Good morning. Good morning. We're talking about food and getting our kids to eat healthy food. And I don't know a parent out there who hasn't struggled with some aspect of of this. What do you feel is the common complaint that that we that you see um, that, that that you have to deal with in families? Yes, <laughs> that's a loaded question. I get lots of complaints on a regular basis, but I think the biggest one is that my child won't eat vegetables or my child is super picky. That is the biggest complaint that I get on a regular basis. Oh, good. Then I'm normal, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis, in addition to how can I provide healthy food for my family in this, um, you know, prior to COVID in this very busy go, go, go time frame. And now during COVID, 
how can I provide healthy food that my kids are going to eat and not hate me because I'm stuck inside with them all day long? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's address some of those issues. Let's start with picky eaters. What is your best advice uh, to either introduce new foods or to get them to eventually um, like a wide variety? Yeah, so I've got three different things that I really like to address when it comes to picky eating. First of all, get those kids in the kitchen. Even from a young age, introducing them to the vegetables, to the foods, allowing them some ownership of preparing it. Evidence shows us that they are going to be more likely to try it if they have ownership in preparing it. So even your toddlers think they can help wash the fruits and vegetables. They can tear the lettuce leaves. Um, You know, some of our older kids can measure and pour. Getting them in the kitchen not only exposes them to the foods, but it also allows you a great time to develop a relationship with your child and practice some life skills, especially with the little ones, such as colors and counting and, you know, math, those types of things. And then by the time they're teenagers, they are actually showing some sort of independence and you're providing them good skills for when they leave the home, right? Because we don't Mm -hmm. want them to live with us for the rest of our lives. (laughs) So we want to prepare them going forward. Then if you have, um, you know, get the whole family involved. So I like Try It Tuesdays, which is where uh, we have our picky eater or maybe you have somebody you rotate in the family On Tuesdays, we pick a new food to try. It might be a different type of meat. It might be a different fruit or a vegetable. Prepare it, and everybody tries it together as a family, and you can kind of critique it. Say, yes, I really like this on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, You know, make it fun. Make it a game. Uh, What would we do different for the next time? And then for our other – for our – Toddlers, really uh, importantly, because we're exposing them to all different kinds of foods, is I really love, love it, like it, learn it. So you want to offer them a food they love, offer them a food they like, and offer them a food that they are learning all at the same time. So that way you know that they're going to be getting foods that they like and that they love, but that they are also being exposed to new foods at the same time. I think so often the scenario looks like this mom or dad or both mom and dad have decided that the toddler or the child is at the age that they should be liking, insert whatever the food is. We're we're gathered around the table and we say, (laughs) if you want to get up from this table, you will eat certain amount or all of that particular food and then instantly becomes strife. Why is that so detrimental? Right. Because we actually think about when you uh, feed an infant. What happens when they're done, right? They turn their head, they push you away, they might push the food out uh, from their mouth with their tongue. Infants listen to their body's cues. And unfortunately, as we've gotten older, we have an abundance of food to choose from. And we have this culture where it's, if the food's given to us, we need to eat it. And we have learned to ignore those internal cues, uh, which is partly causing our obesity crisis is because we forgot how to listen to our body. So we, we don't want to teach our children to ignore their body's cues. Think about some days you may not want to be a big eater. I'm thinking about what I ate for dinner last night. It was a very light dinner. I had yogurt. Yes, I'm a dietitian and I had yogurt. You know what? My husband wasn't home. <laughs> I didn't feel like cooking and I had a really big lunch. So your kids are the exact same way. They're not always going to be great eaters every single day and that's okay. We just have to look at the overall picture and make sure that they're continuing to grow. Does that translate to older kids? I'm thinking of a scenario with teenagers when we see their uh, certain eating habits and we're alarmed a little bit because we are looking at it over a few days or weeks and we're thinking, ooh, they, they may not have the best Doritos does not a diet. I was just thinking yeah. exactly sure, of sure. Doritos, a big bowl of Doritos last night, and I was like, "Is that what we're doing for dinner?" Um, so, how do we help our older kids develop or 
or <laughs> tune back into that intuition in a healthier way. Right. So with teenagers, we have to think that they are in the here and the now. They do not care about what's happening in the future most of the time. And if they don't see instant changes, right? So with little kids, we can talk about, oh, certain foods are going to help you grow and build muscles and be strong. Typically with teenagers, it's really kind of trying to address it in the here and the now, as well as maybe start introducing some of the long-term consequences, right? So if you have, let's say, an athlete in your home, good nutrition will help us on the field. It will help give you more stamina. It will, you know, um, help you build more muscle. So really finding something that resonates with them, with teenagers, uh, teenage girls especially that I see regularly, it's more about their skin and the hair. Mm. Um, You know, they want longer hair. They want clearer skin. Well, you equate that to, I say, what, you know, what happens if you put diesel fuel in a sports car, uh, you know, some Ferrari or something along those lines, it's not going to get optimal performance. Whereas if you put the premium fuel in there, your car is going to perform the way that you want it to perform and your body's the exact same way. So really starting to introduce what what does healthy mean? Um, and I think a lot of times we forget to ask our teenagers that. What do they think healthy means? Um, and this opens a great uh, segue into a, a wonderful conversation for families or, or for caregivers with, with their teenagers because we want to understand what the teenager's definition of healthy is or what they think it is. Mm -hmm. And if it's a little off, that's a great time for us to really kind of readdress that and focus about maybe what the family's history is, what maybe we might be at risk for later on in the future and why eating healthy is important. And, you know, at that point, they're old enough to really kind of start to understand that. So I think that communication is so very important with our teenagers and we can't forget to ask them. So, you know, if you have time, you're in the kitchen or maybe you're at dinner or they come home and they make a comment that they're unhappy with their body, that's a really great time to, ha- to just stop what you're doing, put down the phone, uh, you know, put close the computer screen and really have that open and honest conversation with them. So that way you can maybe head off any unhealthy behaviors that we have going on and really kind of reset them back on the path. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Christy King about fostering better eating habits in our kids. How much of this needs to be um, shown by us as the adults or the parents? A hundred percent. Oh, come on. (laughs) So much pressure. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I had to laugh. I had a a father come in, and and he said, my kid won't eat vegetables, and he was very angry that his child wouldn't eat vegetables. And I said, well, do you eat vegetables? And he goes, oh, no. (laughs) And I said, sir, Hmm. your child is learning that from you. So, you know, really modeling is very important from an early age all the way through teenager and, you know, until they leave the home. You are their main source of learning how to be an adult and learning how to live life. So, you have to model those behaviors as well. So even if you don't like vegetables, you just slap a grin on your face and you eat those at dinner time if you want your kids to eat their vegetables. <laughs> That's so funny. It, it, it is a fascinating thing, though. If I was, say, for example, a picky eater growing up and didn't enjoy vegetables or didn't make that part of my, my meal, I recognize the importance. That is a difficulty of as I'm trying to teach my kids to eat vegetables, trying to get myself on board. Do you have any sort of advice for that? Um, experiment in the kitchen. So I, I think that a lot of times we forget about herbs and spices, and that's really what's going to help with your vegetables. Roasting vegetables, great way to bring out natural flavor. They don't really need a whole bunch of extra herbs and spices. You know, cut up some carrots, throw some, a little bit of salt and pepper on them and put them in the oven with a little bit of olive oil, and it brings out the natural flavor. And I think a lot of people will will be surprised about that, right? So just roasting vegetables is a good way. But really, if you try a vegetable and you don't like it one particular way, try adding garlic to it or try adding oregano and basil. Uh, you could sprinkle a little bit of Parmesan cheese on your vegetables. You know, 
get creative and it may not necessarily sound appeasing to everybody or appealing to everybody. But, um, you know, the important thing is, is that everybody continues to try and you might just surprise yourself and find something that you actually like. Uh, something that has worked for, in our family are smoothies and just hiding them and blending them. Is that something that you recommend of hiding them or or is it better and have more value for us just to be upfront about presenting vegetables? Right. I don't necessarily love the idea of hiding vegetables because I feel like that's being very, my personal preference, that's being very dishonest with the kids, right? I don't want them to be shocked and surprised later on and say, mom, you lied to me, right? So I think that it's important. You may not necessarily tell them that it's in there, but if they ask what's in there, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily not disclose that information mm. um, because then they'll be surprised and go, oh, there's spinach in there? Mm. And then they'll think about it and then they'll run off and go do something else. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, you know, it's not necessarily to, to yell out the ingredients as you're making it, but you know, don't necessarily leave it out if they ask what's in there. Earlier, you mentioned asking our kids, well, what does healthy mean to you? As we answer, and, and I'd love to ask you that question as a dietitian and as a, a, a parent, what does healthy eating really mean? Yeah, so I think that, you know, nutrition is so important and it's so individualized. And it's so funny when I say this, but nutrition is not a, quote, cookbook science, meaning one recipe doesn't fit everybody. And I think that's what's really important that we remember, because what works for you isn't necessarily going to work for your neighbor or even your sister. So I always think about my sister, we, same parents, same upbringing. She requires a lot more physical activity to maintain her weight than I do. Is it fair? No. Nope. Right? But it's actually, but that's very common in families. And so even in your own family, your child's definition may be different. So I think for, for me, when I'm talking with families, things that I really like to say is what is healthy, right? So we want to um, help our bodies prevent any kind of diseases or conditions that might cause us harm later on. And we want to feel good about our body. And I think that's one thing that we can't ignore and is so very important, especially in our teenage girls right now. Um, you know, we're so bombarded with social media and uh, actual media, you know, pictures and things that are very Photoshopped that we've, we've, have this this very distorted view as to what might be beautiful or what might be, quote, healthy. And really talking about having nutritious foods to make our body be as healthy as possible and make it function the way that we want it to function. And again, that's going to be different for everybody. So I have one little patient who says, you know, what's really important to him is being smart in class. Hmm. And he knows that being smart in class means he needs to eat breakfast in the mornings. And that's something that's important for him. So being smart and being able to concentrate in class is part of his healthy. Whereas I have other, other teenagers um, who, you know, their being healthy is being able to run a mile in 12 minutes or 10 hmm. minutes. And that's okay too. So I think, you know, again, it is going to, to vary widely, but I think what's really important is being healthy, meaning that we're keeping our heart strong, we're keeping our bones strong, we're building muscles, and we are able to do the things in life that we want to do. Christy King is a senior pediatric dietitian nutritionist for Texas Children's Hospital in Houston and a clinical instructor for Baylor College of Medicine. You can find more nutrition information and tips to help your kids try new things and maybe shed that picky eater status by going to eatright.org. 
the big takeaways for me were get them in the kitchen. Yeah. That sense of ownership of, hey, let's try this out. And then those try it Tuesdays. That yeah. could make it a Tuesday well, I mean, a little bit more interesting. And then that love it, like it, learn it. You know, uh, the try it Tuesday, that's essentially a theme is just a system. And so I knew you connected <laughs> to that. My big takeaway is you're, you're, uh, you're sneaking that spinach in in your smoothies. Yeah. Not recommended. Well, um, just don't, when they just say, don't hide it. Don't just hide, don't hide it. it. Like, exactly. yes, it's spinach yeah, in yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spinach in a smoothie, perfectly fine. <laughs> hide it, not perfectly fine. Yeah, don't fine. lie to your kids about it and try to trick them into it, but being really just open about it and having them see the process, I think, could have a lot of value. Can we adopt Try It Tuesdays here on the show? You're going to say try different kinds of cookies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a Tuesday. If every Tuesday, I'll I'll even (laughs) join you in the kitchen. Uh, Previously, we can try something. I'm just throwing it out as an option. See, you're getting involved. You like this. I'm paying attention. I don't want to have a single cookie that I might not eat. is a movement that's really started gaining momentum in the past five years. It started as practicing yoga, maybe reading a book, sort of getting into that zone. But this movement has evolved to become really much more practical. You don't have to have a membership to your local yoga studio to find peace. It's all around and inside you. You don't need the biggest paycheck or the busiest schedule to be successful. All you need is just for a moment to catch your breath. Is this something that you find yourself doing a lot? I find myself doing it more than I did five years ago. A lot would not be accurate, but there have been several times where I've just said, you know, I'm just going to need a minute. Uh-huh. And then I actually take them in it, whereas before I would just yell into the void and not actually find mindfulness in that time. But actually now taking a minute and saying, oh, I'm going to be okay. Things are going to be fine. I have noticed that. What's going well. You're not the only person that does this. Think about the even just the word mindfulness. Maybe five years ago, people were like, what? What are you talking about? But it feels like now I have several conversations about people's sharing their mindfulness practices, how it's an extension of of yoga, or how it's just breathing techniques for them, mm-hmm. just taking a moment. Well, and some people even just being able to grab a hold of this because of different apps that have come on yeah. the scene in the mm-hmm. last few years, too. I think that may be one of the biggest pushes behind it. And we thought we would continue this kind of conversation about simple ways to practice mindfulness in minutes um, with writer Joe Osmar. Welcome, Joe. Oh, hello. Thanks for having me. What to you is mindfulness and how do you explain it? Uh, So to me, mindfulness is learning to pay more attention to the present moment of what's happening around you and in your own head, Um, kind of engaging fully with the life you're actually living rather than the one you want to live or think you should should have lived in the past. It's about learning to deal with stress. Um, and enjoy life more. So when you say not living the life that you're really living and not the life yeah. that you want to, uh, ooh, that, <laughs> that, that jumped out at me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Explain a little bit about what you mean and why, why we shouldn't do that. Um, so it's, it's kind of that uh, great John Lennon quote, uh, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can get so caught up in making forward plans and setting these huge goals for ourselves that we forget to actually enjoy the journey. And actually what that means is often, you know, when we reach our goal, uh, it can feel a little disappointing and life hasn't become this huge, great parade uh, that we expected it to be. And so then we just make more plans and more plans and move the goalposts when actually mindfulness teaches you to kind of recognize what's happening now, uh, find the joy in the everyday, um, and just uh, really focus on what's actually happening rather than what you wish would happen or what you should have done in the past. For for so many individuals, though, what a difficult task to ask them, right? Let, let go of the past and what might or could or should have been. I mean, I love it. And the ability to actually do that, how powerful is that? But that is very much an easier said than done premise. 
hundred percent. hundred percent. It's it sounds terrifying, but it, I guess it's just about um, uh, changing your mindset when you do these things. So it's like um, not forgetting the past or not just writing it off, but uh, reflecting rather than ruminating. So rather than beating yourself up, it's about going, all right, that happened. What can I do? Now, what what did I learn? Like using what happened as learning points rather than like a stick to beat yourself with. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst making future plans is great. I mean, it's kind of programmed within us as humans to look to the future. Um, so asking yourself not to do that is ridiculous. But it's about um, enjoying the journey. So being like, I've got this great plan, but I'm going to really enjoy getting there. And I'm going to appreciate the work that I've put in um, rather than seeing it as this one big goal and everything else between that doesn't matter. When a lot of people hear mindfulness, they immediately jump to meditation. Are, are there yes. different mindfulness practices that you have found that are the most effective? Yes. Yeah, so there's two types of mindfulness. There's informal and formal. And the term informal covers the stuff you do as you go about your daily business, um, while formal covers the meditative practices. Um, And it's the informal stuff that I think you're really trying to tap in here uh, with the mindfulness in minutes. It's the stuff that, uh, you know, you you just described at the beginning of this segment of taking that moment of stopping and going, deep breath, (laughs) all right, and moving on. Do you know what I mean? It's, It's that's the stuff that I think we all actually already do but it's tapping into it and recognizing how powerful it is. That's um, really kind of changing how people deal with anxiety and stress, uh, particularly at times like these. You know, Joe, I would be curious. You're talking to us in Amsterdam. I know you happen to be um, from, yes. from Great Britain. So it seems to me that at least you know those two countries. You probably have traveled around more than that. Do you see the way that mindfulness exhibits in different countries or different cultures differently? Oh, good question. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, that is a great question. I, um, I've been a year in Holland, and uh, I have to say the Dutch have a very, what I would call, stoical um, kind of way of looking at the world. A much more, um, uh, well, this is a, gen- a huge generalization, but I would say uh, the kind of mindfulness of being quite present and just, uh, accepting things in a ju- so mindfulness is all about being non-judgmental and quite compassionate to yourself so going okay that happened I'm not going to beat myself up I'm going to learn from it and move on and I definitely see that in quite uh, the Dutch way of living um, which is nice uh, whereas Britain we love a you know self-deprecating drama and to make a huge joke out of it, which is another way of dealing with it, to be fair. Which is why you're so great at humor, and a lot of great comedy has come out of Great Britain, let's be honest. It's true, yeah. It's it's mocking our failures, yeah. No, it's true, it's true. Now, Joe, your book, This Book Will Make You Mindful, you talk about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And so we've been talking about meditation and mindfulness in sort of these, you know, informal and formal ways. But but what is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? Um, so it's about seeing how your thoughts affect your uh, body, affects your mood, and affects your behavior. And it's tapping into the, the patterns that you personally exhibit. Um, so, I mean, the really standard uh, example is if um, somebody walks down the street and you wave at them and they don't uh, wave back and your thoughts go oh my god what did I do he hates me and then that triggers an anxiety spiral and then maybe your behavior is you ignore them the next time you see them and uh, all of this and it's seeing the patterns whereas mindfulness um, teaches you to slow down stop those thoughts from running away so like interrupting the patterns so a really simple mindfulness technique is to say what is my mind doing right now it's to just stop and go what's happening in my head right now and then to name those thoughts are they angry thoughts boredom thoughts worried thoughts annoyed thoughts and then to see where it affects your body 
where is it in your body? Do you feel tense? Are you hunched over? Is it like a nervous pit in your stomach? And then to see how that all connects to what you then might do and uh, how it affects your behavior and also how it affects your mood. And it's, it's recognizing those patterns and interrupting them. Joe Usmar, the uh, author of the book, This Book Will Make You Mindful. We're talking about mindfulness, uh, how we can be able to access this in just mere minutes. Now, I want to I put this situation in front of you, Joe. When I stop down and I think, okay, I'm going to be mindful a little bit, what my mind then does is, well, I got to do the laundry and then I got to go to the grocery store and then later I got to make sure that I do <laughs> oh, this I, and the weather is going to be this tonight and then I got to make sure the show in the morning, do we have everything that we need to do? And quickly, what I have <laughs> hoped to dedicate to taking a break is just allowing my mind to not ruminate on that one thing that I'm either feel for, fearful or angry about, but rather get overwhelmed by the list of things that I should be doing instead of taking that time to be mindful. But what is brilliant is in just recognizing that that happens, you're being mindful. Um, So Hmm. it's quite interesting is that when people think uh, about meditation or mindfulness, they they often think your mind has to be blank. You can never blank out your mind. It's it's an impossibility. What mindfulness is, is stepping back from it and going, oh, look at all these thoughts. (laughs) Aren't they interesting? And then choosing which to engage with. So the very fact that you've recognized that you try to be mindful and that that happened is mindful. Um, it's, it's about going, okay, now my mind is rushing away with all these plans. Do I want to engage with that? Or do I just want to keep focusing on my breath or still trying to, you know, get out of that thought process? But in just the very recognition of it, you're being mindful and a way of actually once your thoughts have run away with you and you've recognized it one of the most simple mindfulness techniques to uh kind of slow down the pace of thought is just focusing on your breath and anyone who does yoga or uh, meditation will know about this but it is literally mindfulness in minutes is a two minute uh counting your breath exercise where an inhale and exhale are one breath And then you count to 10 and you start again. Or you can even say to yourself, breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. And it's just an awareness of that, yes, your mind is racing, but that's not a bad thing. You don't have to stop it. You don't have to beat yourself up about it. You're not doing anything wrong. It's just you do have control over trying to slow it down. That's a wonderful, uh, practical way to practice mindfulness. What's another technique for someone who is listening for that's this is likely very new and uncomfortable for them oh just the simplest one is is a practice called stop uh and it's um stop is just the s is for well stop is just take a momentary pause no matter what you're doing t is for take a breath feel the sensation of your own breathing observe which is acknowledge what is happening around you. I mean, it's a really good way of doing it. It's just engage your senses. What can you see, hear, taste, smell? And then P is for proceed. And it's like having just briefly kind of checked in with yourself, then go about your day. And that is just like pure mindfulness on a really basic level of just, I am aware of my present moment and I'm not planning mad laundry you know (laughs) craziness or home i'm just having a little moment and then you just move on with your day it's not about having a great revelation or a life-changing epiphany it's about just going oh look i'm here in this moment and i'm doing okay and even if you're not doing okay you go maybe i'm not but i've recognized it Hmm. and you know that gives you more control you know, in the things that you've spoken about, uh, the mindfulness minutes, these, you know, anchoring our breath, uh, we've also before on the show talked about eating mindfully. But one mm-hmm. of the things that you you bring up and that you've spoken about is sh- showering mindfully. I have to know about what that is. <laughs> you know, I wrote this, uh, <laughs> wrote this in the book. And um, my editor actually said, this sounds a bit sensual. Are you sure you mean it? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not. It's just one of the only times in the day that we're, we're often alone. Um, so showering mindfully is a really good thing to do because, you know, you're, you're alone and you can really focus on yourself and your mind without being distracted. So, again, it's about in, engaging your senses, like uh, even saying to yourself, 
actually uh, talking yourself through things is a really good way of snapping out of uh, autopilot. Um, so it's like, what can I feel? I can feel the water on my skin. Um, I can feel that it's hot. Is it too hot? Is it cold? What can I smell? Is it my shower gel? What does my shampoo smell of? Is there a, you know, a scent in the air? Um, what does the, um, you know, can I taste the water in my mouth? It's, it's all about these engaging your senses. And even here, what can I hear? The water uh, on the tiles. And it becomes, we often do these daily things on autopilot. And actually, which is so important right now in lockdown, when a lot of our lives look like kind of Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. is making these things that we do every day a bit more, uh, putting more energy into them and making them more focused actually kind of snaps us out of that dreamlike state that we do them all in. You know, now you can get up, brush your teeth, have a shower and get dressed and you don't even notice you've done it. Whereas actually going into the shower and being like, I'm going to have 15 minutes of peace in my shower is like something we don't do. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, free time. I, I, I'm, I'm a favor of it. I, uh, I am totally on board. Showering mindful is where I will begin my mindfulness practice. Water bill may go up as okay. I take five, six, seven Don't showers. Don't forget to breathe. <laughs> uh, Joe Usmar, a British author, ghostwriter, and journalist based in Amsterdam. She's co-authored eight titles in the best-selling This Book Will Make You. We've been talking about uh, her book, This Book Will Make You Calm, and This Book Will Make You Mindful. You can find more of her work online at joannausmar.com. Now, we have been talking a lot about like different kinds of practices that you can do mm-hmm. to kind of relax, be in the moment, be present. One of those is to presently and mindfully write an email. <laughs> the like Lisa that? Show at BYU.edu is how you may do mm-hmm. that, uh, whether it's a, uh, you know, a guest or topic suggestion. Uh, we have mere moments, so let me share this with you. This is from Kristen, who says, I listened to your show on my way home from work. I have cried with you. I have laughed with you and been amazed and enthralled with the stories that you all have. Lately, Richie's devious belly laugh. (laughs) Today, when she writes this, it was about writing your own eulogy and your death DVD. She says, the laugh has helped me laugh easier each day. Thank you both for sharing your life stories with us, Kristen. So thank you for your email, Kristen. And what a great thing to say, you know, to take some time out of your day to, to thank for you for that laugh that's really really sweet uh, it, it sounds a little morbid when you put it in the in the tone of a death dvd i just i, I mean it was for those that didn't hear that segment you could you, you should subscribe to the lisa show wherever you get podcasts we were talking about like writing your own eulogy in case you were happening like, should to you die. do that what would that be like and my idea was to have a dvd that people could watch so <laughs> it's you dictating if you're watching this right now it's clear just like an old movies it's clear that i'm dead but then but then the catch is i'm alive and in the room but i'm done up in a wig and costume now be honest how many dvds have you burned with that message like different versions i'm not telling (laughs) okay good